Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Cheeky Natives. In keeping with the theme of the Kingsmead Book Fair, we bring you another very special guest. Um, I think we're realizing that the theme of our time at the Kingsmead Book Fair is the memoir, the memoir, the memoir. Mm. So we have a wonderful guest today. And I'm just going to read the blurb because it's my thing. And Nikolakonolo so eloquently exposed me on another other <laughs> I just have a thing for blurbs, guys. I have a uh. thing for blurbs because they're so... It's so interesting the kind of stuff that people think is important to be the first contact yeah. with the reader. Yeah. So I'm just going to read Landa's uh, blurb, which also just had me read it through the book. So it goes, In April 1981, Landa Mabenge enters this world trapped in a girl's body. From the start, Landa is aware that he does not relate to his female form, despite being socialized as a girl. At age 11, his world is shattered when an angry woman and her zombie-like husband arrive in Umtata to force him to accompany them to Port Elizabeth. Life in PE with the parents soon morphs into a Dickinson nightmare. Landa is subjected to horrific abuse as he descends into a world of isolation and shame. I counted the years I will have to remain a slave. There are seven before my redemption. Seven times 365 is 2,555 days. Today is nearly at an end. By the end of tomorrow, there will be 2,554. By the end of the week, 2,548. And so I will myself on. Eventually, the day will come when I will be free. At 18, Landa is finally able to escape PE to study at UCT, where he tries to embrace life as a butch lesbian, but he remains tortured by his female body. After close-to-death breakdown, Landa finds strength to embark on an arduous four-year-long journey to physically and legally become him. In 2014, he, becomes, he makes history by becoming the first known transgender man in South Africa to successfully motivate a medical aid to pay for his surgeries. Both heartbreaking and uplifting, Becoming Him is a groundbreaking story of torture and triumph, bravely opening the lid on cultural shame and abuse against those who choose a path less traveled. It gives me so much pleasure to introduce today's guest, Landa Mapping, who is a passionate transgender activist and educationalist through his consultancy, Landa Mapping Consulting. He's also UCT graduated. In 2017, he was selected as a Nelson Mandela Washington Fellow for African for Young African Leaders. Ooh. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Yo, this is what to do, though. Yeah. I mean, firstly, awesome. we also have to say, now I'm sitting in the presence of greatness because we have an alum of the Yali Fellowship. Yeah. And okay. Alma will be heading off to the US of A to do the same program. Yay. So, okay, you know, Yali people. Yali, Yali people. rocks. Yes. So, Landa, mm. how are you doing? I'm good, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm good. It's good to be in Joburg, yes. invited to the King's Mid Book Fair. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, life is good. Cool. Hey, Landa is, uh, is now a regular at this, these book fair things. I mean, we saw pictures of him at French Hook just... Yeah, last weekend. Last weekend, this weekend, he's in Joburg. Listen, slay us, King. <laughs> and slay also, us. he's an Alan Payton long listy. Yeah. Mm. Okay, come Yo. through. Wait, King, we are, we are surrounded by black excellence today. We are in the presence of it. So, I just want to... Start at the beginning, obviously. Mm. Your book is called Becoming Him, a trance memoir mm-hmm. of triumph, mm. right? I think that you chose those words particularly, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. a trance memoir of triumph. Mm. So tell us about the title of the book and how it came about. 
So, the, the title of the book actually came much, much, much later. Um, going through the manuscripts, reading and rereading this book, um, the, the resounding theme was the, you know, always being able to come out of any sort of situation that life threw at me, especially my time um, in PE as a child. Um, and then also going back into depression, into isolation, into shame because of, of, of my, the battle that I had with, with, my, with my gender and sexuality at the time. So it, 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 it's, I actually went to the dictionary and I looked at what it means to become and it, it's, it's to begin to be. So I feel my life has been, re, like I've been reinvented so many times and it's, 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 it's always so beautiful to see how I've come out of, of, of different phases and moved into to the next phase of my life. And also um, the butterfly morphing into um, coming out of, of, of a caterpillar. My granny and I spoke about that and I put it in the book. So that analogy for me also spoke to the beauty of becoming. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the trans memo of triumph, uh, I mean, Melinda was, was very keen in terms of coming up with this, with this, with this title. The trans memo of triumph is, again, the, the, the life story, the, the, the battles, the ups, the downs, the ebbs, of, the flows of my life. And obviously, it, it was necessary for me to have trans within there because as a transgender man who is out and proud, who is able to, to, to live a full life uh, in spaces where uh, others cannot. I had to put it out there so that whoever needed to connect with it can connect with it from the title, from the word go. And we'd like you to read just uh, some parts of the prologue, just mm -hmm. to get the listeners, you know, titillated on what this amazing <laughs> memoir. Mm. So I can just start at the beginning. Yeah? Yes. <clears throat> My first memory of feeling like I was a boy is when I'm only seven years old. I feel a weird excitement every time I am near my younger cousin, Minky. We grow up side by side, and between feeding chickens and ducks and watering our grandmother's ever-thirsty garden, we play children's games, which always include playing house-house. I am permanently glued to her shadow, always insisting that she be the mother, while I floric around with my shirt unbuttoned playing father. I feel genuine affection for her. She is also extremely beautiful. Mm. Mm. Ooh. Okay, I mean, I with a prologue like that, why wouldn't you want to read on? <laughs> I think we're done. We can just get Lada to read more from his book. And I think we'll tell people where to get the book. But this book is particularly powerful because of the themes that you that you touch upon so eloquently in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, memoirs are very, very personal. You, yeah. They require a, a sort of intimacy and allowing people to look into the personal, which then becomes the public. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I want to know what then made you decide to write this particular book. You could have written any book, but you chose to write this memoir at this time in your life. Mm. So yeah, you're right. I mean, you're putting your, world, your, your life out there for the world to pick apart as as they please, you know. Um, it, it also carries a lot of implications, especially with the themes of my book, because I, I am not an island. I don't exist in a silo. I've got family. I've got, you know, relatives. Mm -hmm. So it also tests those relationships, because suddenly what's been um, concealed behind closed doors is in the public now, mm -hmm. you know. So I've always wanted to write a book. I've, I've written, you know, I began writing very young, and 
during my time in, in therapy when I was at UCT, I used to journal a lot. Yes. And at the time, I felt, uh, you know, this urge that I need to tell my story, but the motivation was wrong. I wanted to expose my parents, you mm. know. Um, and so the writing kind of like stopped at some point, and then it picked up again when I met Melinda and started the writing workshops. But... Um, yeah, it, 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 I felt I had to tell the story. This, this is, you know, this experience, my experiences are unique to me, mm-hmm. but these experiences are common amongst a lot of people, especially black people. Mm-hmm. I felt that there needed to be a narrative that speaks to the traumas that we go, to, mm-hmm. go through, that some people have gone through, mm-hmm. uh, which might or might not have anything to do with gender or sexuality, mm-hmm. but which taint um, black communities and black families a lot. So that was the motivating factor. Mm-hmm. One of the key things you, which you mentioned in speaking about why you wanted to write the book was in some ways to excavate and bring to the fore abuse, yeah. particularly in the familial sense, right? Yeah. Why did you think... I mean, talk to us about like the journey of including that particular <coughs> part. Because on the one hand, it's you are revisiting parts of your life that are very painful. Yeah. You know, how was that? But also why you felt it was important for you to include it um, in your memoir. But also now with the the benefit of therapy and having yeah. been able to look at it from outside, you know, the book has been written, you've read it, you now have had a chance to process this from outside. I want to know what that process has then been like. Mm. So I felt it necessary to, because it's part of my journey, right? It's part of my becoming, um, and at certain points unbecoming because there was a lot of regression, especially in terms of the mental health element of, of, of my life. So I felt it's necessary to include because in weaving this tapestry of my life, it's a very big part of my mm-hmm. life. And it's a part that showed me or has come to show that I, I have... I, 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 I was able to make it, you know, I, I had that resolve to keep pushing, to keep going, to keep going, to keep going. And I mean, as a child, you never really understand that you are strong enough until being strong is the only choice you have. Mm-hmm. So that was the reason why. It's, a, it's an integral part of my life. Also, because I, I was born and raised in love for the first part of my life, then I moved into trauma, into pain, into abuse, and then I came out again and I, and I had people who walked my journey with me and returned me to love. Mm. So I thought it was very important to show how one's life can come full circle, especially coming out of trauma. Mm. It was very difficult. There were days I didn't want to wake up Mm. because looking and going back into that darkness, I had a fear that I wouldn't come out. Mm. Um, And having worked extensively in therapy, it's a lot of work. If Mm. you wanted to work, you need to invest yourself. And it's quite draining. Mm. So the lover was very key in terms of, you know, being my right hand and and assisting me, especially on days when I didn't want to get out of bed. Mm. But looking from the outside now, now that it's been written, there are days where I'm like, how did you make it? Mm. You know? Uh, Because, again, our families are very, they're brilliant at masking the truth, the trauma. You know, you can go into any space and you will find that, wow, wow, these guys are like hectic, you know? So I read it and I realize, by yo, this is hectic, but I'm also grateful that I got the opportunity to write it and tell it because I've had so many people connect, especially with those parts of my story, and have been then able to go and seek help for their, for themselves. So, 
Yeah, it's 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 at the, there are days when it it still feels very surreal. I just I I always like uh, the friend of mine Tandy that I speak about in the book. We're still very close. Up until today, we sit down and we're like, but Amanda, what could have possibly happened to your mother? You know, why was she? Like? So it's 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 coming from that space now. But yeah, very grateful to have been able to write and tell that part. Speaking of um, toxicity in in family. Um, like you said earlier, you don't exist in a silo, you know, so you've obviously got family. And I want to know, you had the opportunity to obviously go and revisit a lot of these very painful mm. memories and also visit the ways in which our own families are complicit sometimes through their silence in, in mm. our mistreatments and in our abuse. And I want to know how writing this book has now framed your relationships with other people in your family? And mm. did it frame the way that you also felt about the adults in your family who may have had an idea of what was happening, mm. but then also just excluded themselves from taking part in protecting you because mm. we want they wanted to maintain that facade of a family, yeah. and of a I perfect th- family? And I think connected to that is also the relationship between the mother and the father, right? Yeah. So there was a, a sort of gentleness that was extended to you when the mother was not around, yeah. mm. that wasn't extended to you when she was around. Yeah. So even talking about the toxicity in their relationship, mm. that he became someone else when she yeah. was around, but was gentler when she wasn't around. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. The father was like that. And that's why I always say I preferred the mother because with her it was always clear-cut. I always knew where I stood with her. It was always a case of knowing that um, there would never be that bond. There would never be that love, you know. I always um, tell anyone who, who asks, at 30, I'm 38 now. I've never hugged my mother. I've never kissed her. I've never held her hand, save for when she was beating me. So with her, it was simple, open and shut. She was easy. With the father, he had these multiple faces, these, these personalities, right? And in some in some instances would go on to say, but hey, and Mama, I don't know what's wrong with your mother. But yet they are a team, they are a unit, you know. Yes, you. And so um, it was easier for me to make sense of the mother than the father because mm. with him I never knew where I stood. Mm. But um, with the family and the ties and the toxicity, it's moved now into spaces where they discuss or they talk about the book. Um, no, but there's one uh, maternal uncle who has, you know, he has sent me SMSs calling me a serpent, you know, attacking me personally in terms of my gender identity. That's so because that's what they always do, right? Mm-hmm. When they don't agree with you in principle, they attack the person. Mm-hmm. And do you know what, what, I mean, it was on the 10th of February this year that he started sending these SMSs a Sunday. And he's quite, uh, you know, a regular at church. It's it's amazing how humans do these things. And how partic- particularly wow. a particular kind of overly wow. religious. Yeah, right? It's like he's going to, to make penance before he comes and attacks, mm. attacks me. But I actually said to the lover, it felt like the mother was, was, was it was the mother's words, you know, mm. spitting that vitriol at me and stuff like that. But I got to a point where I just switched off because... It's not worth my energy. I've worked a lot on who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have a right to tell the story of my life and, 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 and tell it like it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be tiptoeing around people's feelings. Um, 
some of them feel that as a child I must have done something to warrant the parents, especially the mother, to treat me the way she did. So it's abuse apologists, right? Mm. Most of them, though, don't engage me. Most of them have, I, I feel, have kind of like just cut me off, which is, which is all good as well, you know? Uh, another theme that you probably might have picked up in the book is that my friends raised me. I yes. mean, coming into UCT, I was still very young. There, were, there was a lot of development that needed to happen with me. And so those people are still here. Mm -hmm. So whilst I might not be able to choose the family that I was born into, I can choose my family now. Chosen family is real family. I love that because it also then makes us question our own ideas. Because in reading this book, I really question my own idea of of family and yeah. what you really think family to be outside of this nuclear Ooh. structure that we get taught get taught about and that gets ingrained in our yeah. minds. As I think of your relationship with the mom that you describe as really yeah. having been your mother in, in almost every mm. sense of the mm. word, right? And I think of your relationship with your grandparents mm. and, and the ways in which our families can really hold us in love mm. in, in ways that really closely resemble what we think a biological relationship should, should be. Should be like, yeah? Yeah. So those normative, like the, yeah, that, that space where you realize, behind man, this, this, this nuclear idea is just that, an idea. Mm. And it's, it's, it's not reality for a lot of people. You know, um, so yeah, Omar actually she couldn't have her own kids, um, and she died. I think very sad because she had invested a lot in me as a child, um, paid for everything, schooling. Um, you know, even when I was at UCT before she she passed away, she she even paid some 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 funds towards UCT. Mm -hmm. So that is what I would have expected or would have hoped to have had from the parents, but it doesn't necessarily translate. Mm -hmm. And then we go to, to church on Saturday and Sunday, and we, we become these holier-than-everyone-else's, but meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's just trauma. We're taking a short break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and, of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Hmm. I want to talk about speaking of. Saturdays and Sundays and at church mm. the role of church and the role of, of organized religion in this book is yeah. is quite a strong theme for a lot of reasons I it it helps to reinforce the toxic toxicity musical, <laughs> the toxicity right mm. that that plays out in your household but it also reinforces a lot of the feelings of inadequacy and not feeling enough and feeling that you're always going to have to be what you are not mm. in order to fit in. Mm. And I think also more importantly, the othering. Yeah. Yes. So this religion yes. allows the people in the church, the literal building of the church, yeah. to spew yeah. these transphobic and homophobic comments mm. that are not translating into the home. Exactly. And in the home... You hear the mother, you know, yeah, spewing that, yeah. reinforcing that. And, 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 and for someone who grew up in organized religion, right, for mm. someone who, mm. in some ways, you wanted to please the parents. Of course. Because 
you were like, ah, guys, maybe they will love me if I'm this person. Exactly. But there was a lot of othering. Yeah. Now having written that, right, what are your reflections about like organized religion and how it participates in othering people? Mm, I think that's where the source of othering actually comes from, especially from our communities and, yes. and especially yes. black communities. Um, we shy away from everything and every element of being human first, and we go and formulate these ideas within that space. I mean, I, I read somewhere that religion is the only um, culture that doesn't that doesn't allow human beings to be you know um, and so I, I just felt like you said I felt that um, if I really immerse myself um, in terms of understanding the doctrines of the church and 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 partaking in the youth groups that I was assigned to um, the parents especially the mother uh, would meet me at, at, we would find equilibrium, and it didn't happen like that, you know? Um, and I always, um, you know, I, I, I could always look at her and think, wow, um, on the home level, you are the epitome of evil, but when you stand there in front of these masses and you speak about this God and how he's supposed to be loved, it's, it's a whole other world, you know? And it's like you're a different person. Exactly. Like you are not the same person that just beat me. Wow. Or the same person that or just... keeps telling me that I'm not going to amount to anything yeah. in life. But it also then plays into the ways in which abusers behave, right? Because then it becomes difficult for people to believe that what you're saying about exactly. this person is true. Right. Because you come with this accounts that is true but is very different yeah. to to other people's experience of this person and i think that in reading this book it also reinforces that because often people use that as a defense right it's, yeah like this person could have never been abusive she was always so lovely yeah. to me but your experience of a person doesn't nullify that of their victim exactly right? especially if you're not in company with that person 24 mm. hours a day and another element of the mother which is a part of me that I started resenting at some point mm. is the fact that she had the most amazing voice. She could sing. And I would lose myself, you know, um, as w when she sings and then the minute she stops, reality kicks in. Mm -hmm. that, the, that, that voice is not a reflection of this, mm. of this person. And I mean, I started singing at a young age. I couldn't even go to choir practice because it was a nuisance in the home because mm. it's before school. And I hated music at some point, especially when I was depressed, because I felt it was a big connector between me and the mother, mm. until I allowed myself to actually join a choir and mm. actually enjoy the passions for what they are, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. So that also takes a lot of work, but also just shows the, the, the multiplicity of these personalities and these personas that one has to deal with, especially veiled behind the church, the culture that is the church, the cultism that happens in organized religion. Hmm. There's a, a connection, right, between your mental health, hmm. but also thinking about when you talk about body shame hmm. and when you talk about dysmorphia hmm. and dysphoria, hmm. right? Hmm. The idea that part of your mental well-being rested on the fact that you didn't feel at home in your body. Mm -hmm. Do you want to take us through through that? Mm -hmm. Like that experience of, you know, growing up, not feeling like you belong in this body mm -hmm. and, and having to have this abuse, but also as you're growing older, continuously be in these depressive states. Mm -hmm. right? and, and that socialization as well, mm -hmm. which is 
honestly, as reading the book, I, I could feel that that socialization felt so foreign to who you knew yourself mm. to be, you know? No, definitely. I mean, there, there are days when I'm like, I want to kick myself that um, girls at, at schools are allowed to wear grey pants now. I mean, during my time, that was taboo, you know, which could have possibly lessened uh, some of the impacts of that socialization. But going back to the, to the mental health, the body, the growing up, the abuse, you know, it was a it was a terrible part of who I was because even though I grew up in Umtata, raised and socialized as a girl, there were specific liberties in my grandparents' home. Like yes. I could come back from school, wear my pants. You know, my and I would argue about the fact that why can't I wear pants to school? You know, I just didn't fit into this body. It felt like something was not aligning. You know, even as a child, I just felt weird. You know. Mm. Um, and then going to stay with the parents, and that's where my body develops, right? And now I'm starting to have my menzies, the breasts are growing on my chest. It was horror, horror, horror. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I couldn't even speak to the mother about mm -hmm. it. Because the first person I tell is my brother, and my naive uh, self believes that, okay, it's developing according to this what I This is what I, I want, need, exactly, you know? exactly. And it's not. And so my brother tells me, there's nothing I can do for you. And I mean, I, I held on to people when they said, because Ma said that um, after she had dropped me off. Yes. And then my brother's also telling me that there's nothing he can do for me. And I think that's what also helped me to build my resistance because I realized at a young age that I'm all I have, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's, at some point in my life, someone won't be able to do anything for me. Mm -hmm. And so growing up and developing, wow, it was trauma. Going to the church again, the particular, well, I can say it because it's in the book, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it, it doesn't uh, um, encourage girls to wear pants, even outside the church. So again, it's it's like, whoa. I mean, I find solace in wearing, in, in dressing the way I feel comfortable in, despite the body. But if you want to take that away from me as well, it, it, it sort of like plummets me deeper into this depression. And so getting to UCT, and I think that's where my world collapses and primarily because this dysphoria is there since inception. So the abuse is the tipping point, yeah, but I've had these mental health issues. I've been having conversations with myself. I have known myself to be who I am, but everyone else seems to have an idea and are telling me, no, you're not this, you are this, you know? And so that's where my life crumbles. And I mean, even getting into... Um, same-sex relationships at the time fulfilled that void a little bit, you know, because it still is not me. And there's no, I can't find, there's no words. I don't know, I don't know how to explain this, which is when I eventually Google uh, what it means to be a man in a woman's body. And that's when I find this, you know, literature, the, the theories, the, the language, you mm. know, to be able to quantify, okay, this is what's going on. So, yeah. so I think that, that there are two really powerful moments there. The first moment is when you say that even as a child, you knew mm. that there was a disconnect. Mm. And I mean, it speaks to this idea that we have that, that a lot of people use to promote their transphobia, mm. is to say that, no, we can't let children dress in certain ways or behave in certain ways because they don't know. Mm. When the reality is, even as a child, you knew that this disconnect existed. Mm. And, and you knew that there was something in the equation that just wasn't yeah. making sense to you as yeah. a person, you know? 
And then to then to further add on to that is to the the finding of the language, mm. and I want to speak about that mm. that finding of the language and what it meant to you to find the language of mm. what you were experiencing at the time. Did it make a lot of the dysphoria and a lot of the feelings that you were feeling make sense? What mm. did it do? It it did. Suddenly, I could put it into words. Now I could understand that okay, there's 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 a word for this, and it's called being transgender. You know. Um, I I think it was Judith Butler who wrote about the politics of the wardrobe. It is Judith. Yeah. And um, you know, there again, who decides who should wear what, when, how? Mm. You know, we were talking about this in class the other day, and we were talking about how our native um, attire, our traditional mm. wear, everyone is uniform. It's all feminine, if we can call it like that. But now we we politic we we are so political about mm -hmm. about gender in terms of even the colors pink and blue and and we gender everything. The other day I read on Facebook that women must drive Mercedes Benzes and men must drive BMWs. Come on, what does that mean? Anyway, excuse my French. But yeah, so finding the language was an aha moment. But a part of that was also a bit depressing, if I can put it like that, because it spoke to mental health. You know, it was a, a gender identity disorder. And I mean, I've battled with mental health issues all my life. Now again, that is highlighted. But it felt liberating in the sense that I had, I, I had people I could now talk to. Mm -hmm. During my research, I found this transgender clinic. I went there. So it, it, it eased that burden of I, of, I suppose of also it, it made you feel less alone. Yeah. Yes. Throughout your lifetime, you are constantly fending for yourself yeah. and feeling like actually nobody's going to have my back. Yeah. But when you find the language, you find that there are people in the world who exist in this yeah. space. So in, in some ways, it also made you feel not alone. Yeah. And to be like, I am seen. Yeah. They, they, this is real. It's not just a figment. And of it highlights the importance of language. Right? Yeah. It highlights why it's so important to use the correct language when addressing people, to yeah. use the correct pronouns, to exactly. use words that are not transphobic, to not misgender people, because people make it seem like, oh, the woke warriors are being problematic again, mm. you're being sensitive, but it's not a, it's not, and for me, this is really something that came out so deeply in the book, is the issue of language, mm. and what it means to be able to name yourself, and yeah. to be able to name what you're feeling, and to be able to name what is happening to you, yeah. and to also be able to not be misnamed. It's owning yourself, right? Mm. It's, it's taking charge of who you are and we should all have the right to do that um, I mean you are born and you are assigned a gender at birth yes. you are given a first name why can't we give ourselves names do you understand what I'm trying to say here <laughs> um, everything about us is predetermined yes. and when we decide to own ourselves our journeys our lives then everyone has something to say so yeah I think it's very very important and also just touching back on the misgendering or dead naming mm. um, some people will be like hey, you must give me time to adjust there's nothing to adjust it's either you see me or you don't see me. Hmm. We don't have to sit at the same table. Do you get what I'm saying? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conscious thing. Human beings can be very selective about what they want to see and receive in a person understand. And, what, and understand. Hmm. And we, does we it still feel time. as visceral to have people 
do that and abuse the language that they use to speak to you because I think we we underestimate what it what it does to somebody to yeah. dead name them yeah. to misgender them. It means you don't see me, so yeah. it still does. Uh, and again, it's about finding ways to to work with one's one's mental health as well. I've I've I'm I'm on a quest to just choose the people I hang around now, mm -hmm. choose the people who are in my inner circle, um, and and just work with those people. And I mean, even my, my dead name, I, I write about it in the book, why I didn't deviate so much from my name, because it connected me to the woman who found herself a mother at two days old, you know, well, with this two-day-old child. But again, I should be allowed, if I wanted to be Tom, then I can be Tom. Do you mm. know what I'm saying? It's a choice that I have. It's, a, it's, it's, it's my liberty. It's my right. People have fought for these rights. People have died uh, ensuring that human beings have the right to be who they are, you know? So... Um, yeah, it's, 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 it requires a lot of work, a lot of awareness, and, and you know, choosing the spaces one, one um, interacts in. And also the, the, the visibility, maybe I can touch on it. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I began my journey, there were no black, transgender people I could look up to, you know. I, there were no journeys I could, I could connect to. And so the only person that, uh, whose journey I found was uh, Cher and... Um, Sunny's child, uh, Shaz Bono. Yes. Uh, and again, I think that's part of the reason why I felt it's important to write this mm. black transgender narrative and, and put it out there so that um, a black transgender child somewhere in the rural village of Mount Elif or wherever, who, who hears about this, can know that it's possible to just choose you every time. You... There are two very pivotal moments that happen in your life, at least uh, we would like to elevate those <laughs> pivotal moments. Mm. One of them is the medical transition that you undertake, mm -hmm. but it was a very odious journey. Yeah. So we want to spend a, a little bit of a moment talking about that. Then what happens after that is the, is the legal journey that you undertake of becoming. So mm. we think really that that elevates the story of why you, read, you wrote the book to be mm. like, you know what, it wasn't all moonlight oh, and roses. Oh. And to, to add to that, because we, we speak a lot about the medical and the legal, but we don't often talk about the psychological. Mm. So if you could just take us through those three elements, the medical, the legal, the psychological, and why you felt it was important. Because, I mean, that's very intimate, and I, I, don't, mm. I don't believe that any of us were entitled to that part of your story. Mm. So we feel quite honored that you chose to include what really was a very personal aspect of mm. your story. But I, I find it so interesting that you went, you went in into yeah. into those aspects, you know. And I want to know in detail, even. in yeah. detail, you know. And you really honored your audience with mm. with those very personal details. So yeah, so the legal actually comes before the medical, mm. um, because when I begin my journey, um, and I speak to, I engage the panel at Scutiscary, the transgender clinical team, um, given the the bureaucracy of our government departments, if I can call it, call it like mm. that, uh, and experiences of, of other trans people who have gone through to home affairs to change their gender markers, to change Ooh. their first names, your the trauma. Can we just really talk about just a little moment? Yeah. Why do we have gender markers in our Why do numbers? we? But shut That's continue. a good one. Why do we? Why do we? Why do we then insist on having these very problematic gender markers and then being problematic in the way that we interact with people who want to change the exactly. gender markers? So again, it's, 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 it's the systems, it's the power. It's a power thing, right? It's an ownership thing. 
because um, yeah, it's an ownership thing. Um, so going into so we we talk about it and and we decide I decided no I'll break this journey down, name change first. Yes. Um, then after a while after I get my new ID. Um, gender marker change. Mm. So the name change was very easy. Anyone can change their name. I mean, if you want to have 20 names, if they can fill on the form, you can go and change them. <laughs> Again, the selectivism, do you get what I'm saying? And then the gender marker change, you need to fill in a form, two motivation letters from a specialist who's working with you, and another medical professional. Mm. So I get these, but even going into home affairs, my phone is on record because I've heard the horror stories. Yes. So I'm ready for a fight mm. and my back is up. I uh, went to Weinberg Home Affairs because it was a newer branch at the time and a younger staff complement. And so I thought perhaps it would be easier to try and convince whoever is assisting me because we get to points where we need to convince people to allow us to be who we are. Mm. Um, to try and convince someone there vis-a-vis -vis in, in the, the Cape Town branch, which is overworked, um, you know, much older. So I was like, okay, let's try Weinberg. Went into Weinberg. And, you know, this guy, initially very confused about what I'm, I'm, I'm presenting to him. But at some point he sees me. He reads the forms. And in engaging with me, he can see that I'm quite irritated. Mm -hmm. um, and he says to me, Mr. London, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to work with you. So he sees me, he has me at that. Because he read everything on the phone. And he, he, and he says, Mr. London. Yes. So he affirms me. Mm -hmm. And we work together. And eventually the forms go off. And I get my new, um, my gender marker change and my new ID. So... Again, that there's that cycle because I needed to go in there already prepared psychologically, right, and emotionally to fight, um, and this is what a lot of transgender people have to go through, mm. um, and then the medical side of things comes mm. because even though you, do, it's not a prerequisite um, to be um, to have you can't, you don't have to have any surgeries to qualify if I can put it like that mm. as transgender. Mm. Because we kind of like always trying to have to prove to someone. You know? And I like that point just to talk about yeah. gender right. essentialism, right? Yeah. And even queer essentialism. Yeah. The yes. idea that you need to be a certain thing in exactly. order to fit into a box. A box. Because even so people in the, the binaries. Even and people in the community yes. exactly. do the Especially same thing. In the community. And the they conversations the about the very problematic conversations about passing and, and, and this, mm. this this almost obsession with that with gatekeeping. That gatekeeping, you know, with the aesthetics and the passing and 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 right because what does that then look like for yeah. trans people who don't want to medically who challenge don't you? have body dysphoria right and i mean it's been it's been happening a transgender men and i'm going to say this especially black transgender men in south africa who have had top surgery are, are big gatekeepers. Mm. Suddenly, if you haven't had any form of surgery, especially because, I mean, once you remove your breasts and you pass very well in, in public, you stand up tall, you feel like, I'm a, I've got this, I've arrived, you know? Mm. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's the most important part. It's the most important surgery. Well, in any case, for me, it was. Because suddenly I could, because I was quite huge. So I could, I could pass and stand tall in society. But in our spaces, in our communities, especially the queer community, that toxicity of wanting to police and undermine transgender men who haven't had that privilege and that access that you have had, it's a very big, big problem. Mm. So, yeah, for me, the, the biggest... Um, so the medical aid is a big issue because these, these surgeries are quite expensive, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And 
There are only two transgender clinics in South Africa, one in Cape Town, one in Joburg. Mm -hmm. The waiting list is 21 to 27 years for one of your surgeries. 27 years. Yeah. Yes. So that for me is not an option. I have labored, I have, I have gone through the darkest of hell, and now I'm finally at a point where I want to live my true life, and you're telling me that I'm going to have to wait 21 years? What does that mean? I was like, okay, cool, let's try and speak to medical aides. My doctors and I rally, we write the motivations. We send it to my then medical aide, they don't even respond. And then I switched to my then partner's um, medical aide, which was Bank Med, the K-Cross option. Again, we motivate, they decline. Pick up the phone, I call in and I ask to speak to the case manager. Why are you declining me? No, you don't need these surgeries. But I'm like, but the doctors say I need the surgeries. Um, and I ask her, would it help if I were to perhaps put you in contact with my surgeon who's going to be performing these surgeries? And she's like, yeah, maybe that could help. It just so happens that she knows Kevin Adams. And so after a conversation with the doctor, which is Kevin Adams, they approved by my, my surgeries. Mm -hmm. Again, I always say this, and I want to say it here as well. I am aware of the privilege that I've had. I am very much aware of it, mm -hmm. the access that I've had, which is why I do the work that I do, because I feel it's important that everyone should be able to access the care that they need, especially uh, within the spaces, um, within the education spaces, but also any community. People need to know what it means to be transgender. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to choose themselves, and they need to have access to health care. Tell us about the, the work that you do, because I think that's an important sort of lead in. I mean, there is an enormous amount of privilege that you, mm. that you have spoken about. I mean, so if someone doesn't have medical aid, what does it mm. look like for them to, yeah. to attempt to, to medically transition in this mm. country? What, what are the social implications? What are the psychological implications mm. for somebody who experiences the gender dysphoria but does not have accesses to, to the surgery that they need. Mm. So the situation is very bleak. Mm. Our medical aids are on some, it's not medically necessary, it's cosmetic surgery. Um, and our, our public health care system needs an overhaul, hey? Mm. Uh, we've got um, public health care professionals who, again, are selective about who and what they want to treat and work with. And the space of, of, of transgender is still very foreign to a lot of them. So the work that I do is, is Lana Mabenga Consulting, which is a, an independent consultancy that does work with NGOs, works with universities in South Africa, to teach on what it means to be transgender, to create awareness, to use my personal story as a resource to catalyze all of those. So it's, it's, it's I think, a, a transgender person, and I can only speak on my mm. experience with authority, but once you can start getting your hormone replacement therapy, mm. you feel that it's a first step towards yes. the bigger end. And so my primary goal is to get um, transgender people uh, in touch with uh, mental health specialists so that they can talk. You need, it's important to talk about the journey, especially when you've been existing in a silo, because most of the time you'll find that transgender people exist in their minds mm. and their bodies are just present. Um, so it's important to, to have a sit down, to talk about what it could look like, what could happen, uh, the implications of taking hormone after your body has developed, and then to, be, to help them to begin their, their journeys towards the problem by taking those hormone therapies. I always encourage, um, especially given my experiences, a lot of transgender people to actually also 
uh, work on my physical health. Mm. So as a trans guy, I mean, I know I've, I've kind of like fallen off the wagon, but it helps to go to gym, it helps to run, it helps to keep your body in shape because it, then your body works with the hormone. Mm. And it's important to then continue working with mental health especially. So a lot of, of, of the young people I see, and that is why most of them, my work is also focused in the education space because therapy is free there. Mm. It's just that we need to upskill the therapists on yes. campuses to be able to provide the care that young people need. But in most spaces, I do have great relationships with NGOs. And so whenever someone gets in touch with me, we can link them to, if they don't have medical aid, then I link them to an NGO that provides safe spaces. There's support groups, um, which meet once or twice or three times you know, a month uh, in certain communities. I mean, I've got a trans man who is in his late 40s who stays mm. in a rural setting. So they've had to be linked to the nearest, but the process starts, you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, which is why it's also important for these organizations, especially non-governmental, us as independent consultants, and the, the government spaces to work together instead of against each other. Mm -hmm. Because once we work together, then we create safe spaces for a lot of people, and more people can be linked together. So there's a, um, you know, <laughs> a a a part of the book which pertains to romantic relationships, mm. right? So you enter romantic relationship first as someone who is dysphoric in your body, and then as you move and move on, you continue, mm. and coupled with this replacement to the hormone replacement therapy you start using alcohol yeah right and there's a moment where abuse happens in the home so mm -hmm. there's an instance of intimate partner violence yeah and um you know you write about it and you say you don't remember mm -hmm. right uh but you see what's happening and you're like what's happening and i think it's really important for us to talk about it right to to talk about that moment mm -hmm. like reflecting back right like what do you think happened in that moment so reflecting uh i think i had a problem with alcohol abuse number one and number two i had a lot of um issues that i hadn't dealt with on on an emotional uh and on a psychological level so i was using the alcohol to mask my pain and i mean that the, the partner that i talk about in the book at the time she was undergoing the um, what do you call it rite of passage mm. into becoming a sangon so there were so many intertwined issues and realities and i was battling to cope and i wasn't telling anyone that i was mm. coping mm. and so i started violently abusing alcohol um and i it reflecting back i think i had a blackout mm -hmm. uh and this blackout was coming from i was very angry and I don't know what triggered that anger. Mm. It goes back to the fact that I think I had so many issues and traumas that I hadn't dealt with. Mm. Uh, it was like Icarus falling very close to the sun and my wings were melting. Mm. And in that, in that, in that moment, um, I black out. I'm, 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 I'm pissed drunk. Mm. Um, and then things happen. There's this armed response. I'm, I'm put in the back of this van. I'm... I'm, I'm it off to the, to the police but still even there i'm of the i'm of the mind that ah, i'll be out of here because that's what we tend to do as uh, let me speak for myself in intimate relationships uh it's possible to undermine the other party mm -hmm. and assume that whatever you do to them 
they will always understand or they will remember that hey, but this person is going through a transition, this person is taking hormones, still has childhood traumas that they haven't dealt with, and, 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 and. And I'm actually quite happy that um, my then girlfriend didn't um, look. We ended up dropping the charges, but I stayed a weekend in a cell with other males, and it was hectic. Mm -hmm. It was an eye-opener, and I couldn't even um, talk about being trans because, again, the police have got this sick way, some of them, of if anyone tells them they're gender diverse, then they will do exactly what is going to cause you harm. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't tell anyone, you know. But I got out of there, but my head was still very inflated. Because, I mean, come on, I've just gotten medical aid uh, to approve my surgeries. You know, I think that was a very self... Um, I was an idiot. Hmm. Um, and the doctors had told me about the, the, the results of alcohol abuse when you take hormones later hmm. in life. And I didn't listen. Um, and so I'm happy that she put her foot down. Especially when after I, I write about how I burnt her clothes. For me, it showed me just how deep my anger issues ran. Mm. And, and a lot of... She was scapegoated, right? Yeah. So she was the unfortunate recipient yeah. of, of violence. She was my the violence. Of violence. Was the of my violence, mm. yeah. And, and I mean, it, had, it regardless of what her personal journey was, I mean, we had intimate conversations about that. Uh, but regardless of what her personal journey was, I was very violent. Hmm. And I think that's why it was important for me to also include that in the book, um, because we don't want to talk intimate partner violence in the hmm. transgender community. And do you think that there was an underlying tinge of, 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 of toxic masculinity? Yeah. Right, so the idea of being socialized because you wanted to be this thing, yes. and this thing means that there is authority. So but this authority means I must beat up this person. There's expectations so they can, yeah, yeah. with being a man in society, mm. right? Um, Was it difficult to to go back? I think to go back to that place because we often find ourselves at places of wokeness, but we don't want to talk about how we arrived there. Mm. And was it difficult to go back to that place? Because, I mean, reading it was very difficult. It was very, oh, no, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to find out the ways in which you can also be a transgressor, mm -hmm. in which you can also be someone who perpetrates this toxicity. I'm becoming everything that I hated, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, because you are the same person who had been abused yeah. by the mother. So I should know better. So it was very difficult to write about. I mean, even during the editing phase, when Melinda came, got to that part, she's like, no, what happened to my sweet Linda? I'm like, Linda's also human. Mm. He's also fucked up. He's also done things that are unbecoming, that are untoward. And I think it's important to uh, reflect Linda as truthfully as possible, which is why that part of the journey is important. But also <coughs> for transgender men to realize that it can get hectic, especially if you don't um, align yourself with the journey fully. I got very toxic. I, I got very patriarchal mm. because of these expectations. I played into society's hands, if I can put it like that, with no one forcing me. Do you get what I'm saying? And it, it can go south very quickly. So one has to be aware and, and within at all times. And I would actually suggest anyone who's, who's in within five or six years of their journey to actually not drink. 
because it also counters the hormones. I mean, you gain weight, it converts to estrogen, then we're back at square one. So, and you, you, your physical and, and, and mental health need to be 100%. Mm. It's quite a trying journey. Hmm. There's a lot of like joy in this book, you know, and we don't want to only focus on on the painful and harrowing parts. There's a lot of joy mm. in in this book, and uh, some of the joy is in the the bathangs. <laughs> the bathangs are where some of the joy is contained, you know. Mm. And I want to talk about how that relationship, because we've spoken about some of the toxic relationships, but how that particular romantic relationship then shaped so much of who you had wanted to become, mm. you know, and you meeting yourself in this place where you are the lander that you want to be mm. and not turning into everything that you've hated and everything that's, that's hurt you, you know, mm. and that's an important place to be because we don't often think about joy in our journeys. Mm. We think of the pain, we think of the sadness, but joy is not a place mm. where we often find ourselves. To reflect on. No, when the lover, um, when the lover and I started dating, I was very open and honest with her, and I think I, I had gotten to a point in my life where I saw myself for who I am, yeah. and I realized that left unchecked and left to my own vices, I could become the monster that I so loathed, and so, I mean, even after the twenty fourteen relationship, I go into I go to AA meetings. Because I want to meet myself and look at myself and receive myself and work with what's there. I work on the anger. I work on which is a which is an ongoing process. You know, I work on the substance abuse. Mm. And so when I got into into my relationship, I was at a point where I was brutally honest with myself. I wasn't sugarcoating anything, and I wanted to give anyone who who who, who saw. Uh, a possible bay in me to know that this is this has been my journey, mm. and I think that we don't we don't talk about those a lot. Uh, we don't allow the other people to actually make the, an informed choice in terms of wanting to be with us. So Ulava, um, we, we 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 talk. We 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 we. You know, she knows that I come from a history of of anger, of violence. You know, and we find ways to talk about that. You know. Um, we allow each other space to breathe as well. She she actually knows when my hormone levels are low. Mm. She will ask me, lover, when is your next shot? And then she can pick up on my energy. So I think we're very energy connected. Mm. And, I, and she's been an amazing part of my life and my journey. She's been the hope that, you know, the hope that I hung on to and the love that I wanted to have. Because at some point I felt I wasn't ready of love, you know, mm. to give or receive. So it's, it's, it's for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's compatibility. Um, understanding and knowing that she actually is one of those people who don't give a fuck what people think or say mm. about her, which works for me because a lot of people are unpacking me, especially after the book, you know. Mm. So, yeah, love has been a beautiful thing for me. Mm. I think it reinforced the idea that human beings always have a choice. Mm. Wherever you find yourself, you can choose love and you can choose the consequences of love. Um, and so the reason why I'm saying is, is, is this is whatever happened to the parents in their, pre, in their childhoods or wherever they found themselves in a space where, which led them to be with the people they were, they could have still chosen love mm. because they did it so willingly with my younger siblings. Mm. You know? So yeah, it's, love has been beautiful for me. I find that to have been one of the most hopeful aspects of, of this book and not just love in the romantic sense, mm. but love in your friendships and the ways in which 
your friends held you mm. and the ways in which your your maternal family also mm. held you you know and i and i think so much of of that also goes back to this idea of of that deficit of love that yeah. you were talking about right yeah. and to to see you come full circle in mm. the book and come and arrive at this place where you are really at your truest self yeah. and still being held in love is such a powerful moment yeah. in the book it's also such a hopeful moment for anyone reading this book who's then grappling with their own own personal difficulties yeah. right because you really at that point in your life you came quite quite nakedly like here mm. i am this is what i bring to the table i'm not performing anything for yeah. anyone anymore and if this is not sufficient then i don't know what yeah. no what definitely and I, i mean i've been blessed to have the friends that i have you know uta and class is one of those friends you can invite her to a party she won't come but if you need her <laughs> to in the morning she's there Mm. You know, so and she was very open with me, especially after my last relationship. That Landa, you will probably have to sit down and have a conversation about your anger mm. and how it's manifested so hectically, mm. and what you need to do to go back into the soul parts of who you are mm. and work on it. Mm. Um, so I, I've had those types of people who are very forthcoming. Uncle JS, who was very blunt, you need to go for anger management. Mm. There's a big problem mm. here. You know, so I, I I've been blessed to have those people who call me out on my bullshit. and in calling me out don't desert me they mm. still work with me in that love you know mm. so yeah love has been a beautiful thing i also really like your after for afterwards yes. because i think that it really speaks to this trans memoir of triumph you write mm. but humility is a work in progress and there are times when i need to work on practicing tolerance whenever individual questions my genitalia i am reminded of how blinkered and obsessed with labels we humans are. Mm. Whatever lies between my legs, whether I sit or stand when I pee, my genitals are what they are and they serve their purpose. Mm. Whatever they shape, size or name of them, and whether I have chosen to surgically align my body to my identity or not, I remain the man I've always I've always been. Mm. But perhaps my greatest lesson through all the pain, self-loathing and hardship has been able to embrace the beauty of the individuality and the importance of identity and self-love. Mm-hmm. Whatever decisions I've made regarding my body have been mine to make. I've met I've been met with admiration by some and outright rejection by others and still I remain me, Landa. The journey continues as life does with all its ups and downs and ebbs and flows, the tapestry pot-woven and my purpose an ever fulfilling well of enlightenment what a beautiful way sure. to end the book yeah. just to speak about like i reject whatever notions you want to impose on me yeah. so thank you landa no, for thank you, for, for a book of triumph yeah. for a book triumph. of triumph right yeah. in in a world that seeks to erase you yeah. as a black person mm. as a trans body mm. it seeks to erase you Completely. so thank you for taking up the mantle of writing yourself back into history because mm. this is the work of archiving mm. the stories of black queer trans people mm. in South Africa. In South Africa. Mm. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. And then we and we're so grateful for the vulnerability and the honesty with which you wrote this story particularly considering the way that our communities thrive on secrecy Ooh. and on shame and on keeping these facades of perfection mm. and what it means to step out of that to know that you're stepping out of that alone yeah. and step into a great unknown of telling mm. of telling your story because i mean at the time that you wrote the book um 
we were really starting when this book came up we were starting to have conversations about what it means to be transgender in this country about the ways in which we harm and mm. treat transgender violate. people and violate transgender people and this book comes out and then becomes so accessible and you remain accessible and mm. we're so grateful for that so i mean from the cheeky natives we are just so grateful that you've done this this work and i don't think that anyone can read this book and then continue to be transphobic and trans and and problematic yeah. in in many ways and i think that this is is going to spur some very important important questions and dialogues, important yeah. dialogues because we need to have those those dialogues and i think that's something that you do with so much grace as well yeah. as to have these dialogues with some very problematic people and i mean there's a there's a grace that you extend there that we cannot honor enough you Thank know you so thank and you now for we come to the part we've been waiting for. Part. I feel like we've been deep, hey. This, yeah, yeah. It's quite, this, yeah. this, this, this. But so, it's, it's beautiful because it was, it was the the idea that that even in in our depth, because I think often people are afraid to go into deep into the mm. deep things, right? Because it means that you must do the work of like unraveling. Yeah, you, know, you must do the work of unraveling. But I think reading this, we went we went deep. But yeah. God, you come out of here and you're like, wow, this is what it means to triumph, you know. And so we're yeah. hopeful. So we have to give you land because yes. we're in the business of reparation. Yay. Yes, the so land, the land. We want to give you land. So now we give land. We don't give our authors. I'm a stars. I don't know what you're going to do, uh, stars. Like no, we want to give you land. And, and we want popcorn. to give you land, prime land, man. Prime, prime land. So we give prime land. This is a prime. This is the real estate. Prime, 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 prime real estate, okay. So I will give Elma the honors to give you, to bestow on you the land. Guys, we're thinking I was never rich. So I'm going to, after deep consultation with my partner in the land commission, we've decided that we're going to give Landa land in Rondebosch. Yay! For a number of reasons. It's prime land. It is also close yeah. to the university and it's close to the young people mm. whose lives you're continuing to change. And we want you to continue to do the work that the you're work. doing. It is such important. It's such important work. And also because that era is very symbolic. I mean, yeah. people read the book, yeah. they'll know why we chose that particular the journey era. back into it. The yeah. journey, the journey. And we know that this is really the beginning of many wonderful, great things for you as you continue to travel and to tell your story and you yeah. empower, empower people. And not just transgender people, but I think lots of people are going to read this book and identify with the story. Yeah. No, I've had that. I've had great responses you know yes. from people who were just broken and just need to find ways to mend themselves mm. you know mm. so yeah thank you Landa thank you so much awesome, eh? um, thank you very much so we'll catch you on the next episode of the Cheeky Natives Ooh. with Cheeky Conversations yes. bye